I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's podcast is a meeting with a senior market figure most of us have known for many years. Sean McGovern served in different board-level capacities at Lloyd's for just over two decades before leaving to join the then XL Catlin in 2016, ahead of its 2018 acquisition by AXA. Last summer, he was made CEO of AXA XL's UK and Lloyd's business, the first time he has held a CEO post. This interview is all about his plans for the role now that the difficult remedial actions aimed at turning around the large London market insurer's underwriting performance have been taken and market conditions have taken a decisive turn for the better. As a veteran Lloyd spokesperson, Sean has been in the public eye for many years and in this encounter I found him easygoing, relaxed and excited to be running a major London operation with the backing of the world's largest PNC group behind him. Listen on for an insider's view of the opportunities currently presenting themselves in the London market. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claims service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you could be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Sean, thank you so much for giving me some of your valuable time. You've been a very senior executive all the career, all the time that I've known you. How are you enjoying personally now the challenge of a CEO role? Um, well, firstly, Mark, it's very good to talk to you. It's been a while since you and I have had an opportunity to, to have a chat, and it's always a pleasure. In short, I'm really enjoying it. I took the role on fully in July of 2020. You probably would expect to hear me say that I'm enjoying it, but I genuinely mean it. And it's been you know, a real privilege for me to be given the opportunity to do it. Now, having said that, of course, it hasn't been easy. Last year was a tough year for everybody, personally and professionally. And of course, I was appointed into the role whilst we were all operating remotely. And we've had some particular challenges that we've been dealing with as a business, which no doubt you will quiz me about a bit later. But the challenge has been making the changes we've needed to make, whether that's building the team, changing the operating model, and really just getting our UK business back on track for the future. But doing that operating from home has just added to the challenge. But 
I guess what I've learned through it all is that I have the privilege of working with some really great colleagues who have been phenomenal, both in terms of their resilience in coping with a difficult year because of the circumstances, but have also been incredibly supportive and professional through a period of change within the business. And as you say, I've been lucky enough in my career to have been working alongside many CEOs, both at Lloyd's and at AXA XL in its various guises. And it's great that I've got the opportunity now to step onto this role and I'm really relishing it. What, in your opinion, went wrong and what went right with AXA XL's underwriting the last three years? So we've come an awfully long way as a business and it might be useful. Maybe if I just paint a picture of where we've come from and what we've been doing. I mean, clearly AXA XL is a business that's been through a tremendous amount of change. I mean, if you go back to when XL bought Catlin back in 2015, we went through integration. Then in 2017, it was announced that XL Catlin was being acquired by AXA and that deal closed towards the end of 2018. We went, then went through a further round of integration, bringing the XL Catlin companies together with a number of AXA companies to form AXA XL. And that was largely completed at the end of 2019. So what we've created is in AXA XL is a global business today that's close to 23 billion dollars of gross written premium across insurance and reinsurance and we're a key part of AXA and AXA is obviously the largest commercial lines insurer in the world and whilst through the phases of that M&A over those years we've built scale and relevance to our clients and brokers not just because of the combination of the companies but because we've been able to drive real opportunities through the creation of revenue synergies so we've created something and have been able to drive growth in the business, but we haven't been delivering underlying earnings as a business over the last few years. Now, clearly, we've been through a fairly persistent period of soft market. We've had some heavy, heavy cat years, but we have had to look closer to home as to what we need to do differently in order to position ourselves for sustainable profit, both in terms of the business we write, but also how we're organized to be able to better serve our our clients and brokers. And that's the process that really started about a year ago when Scott Gunter joined us as the AXA XL CEO. And we did a full review of the business, really looking at how we set ourselves up for success with all of that integration effort behind us. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do at any time. And it's particularly not an easy thing to do when you've got the financial and, and operational challenges of COVID-19. But we had to do it and we couldn't sit out COVID. We had to get on with it and, and really get AXA Excel set up for the future. So the first thing we did was we undertook a deep dive of all of our lines of business to understand the drivers of performance, set our underwriting strategy, set our underwriting appetite. And then second, we looked how we operated and we executed last year on a fundamental change to the way we operate. Historically, we'd been a business that had been organized around global product and P&L sitting in large global product towers with a relatively thin layer of country and regional leadership. And we've moved that to an operating model where P&L sits squarely in the regions and where regional leadership has the mandate to run the business within the underwriting appetites that we've agreed globally for AXA XL. And we did that, obviously, to drive better performance, so we could drive more transparent accountability for who owned the performance of the business. 
but we also did it to ensure that we would ultimately be more effective in the marketplace because by empowering more local regional leadership, you make sure the decision making is local and it's close to the market, close to the clients. And what that does is it simplifies the way we work and it makes us more responsive and drives improvement in our ultimate service offering into the market. So, but we remain at our heart an underwriting business. Uh, we've got an empowered underwriting model where our underwriters can operate with agility and authority. So I'm not, by saying all of that, I'm not making excuses for prior performance, but it's, I think it's important to contextualize it. it you know, we've been a business that has been going through a lot of change. We've built something, I think, which is really powerful as AXA XL. It's even more powerful because it's part of AXA Group, but we've had to change the way we've approached our underwriting and the way we organize ourselves, both to drive better performance, but also to drive our proposition in the market to be more effective. So when you're sitting at the global board level, they look at your results and they say, Sean, you're responsible for what's happening in Lloyds and UK, that's you. And if it's making a loss, that's all on you, isn't it, Sean? Yeah, I mean, it's very, very clear where the accountability sits and I have the levers to pull that I need to pull in order to drive that performance and that clarity and shared sense of purpose for colleagues in the UK is very powerful to get people corralled around a single mission of delivering the underwriting plan. And presumably they've also got the incentives now that are much more aligned with what they're doing day to day. Yeah, I mean, all of our UK colleagues are incentivized to deliver the plan that we've set for the UK. They've been part of building that plan. It's, it's our plan and, you know, it's the plan we're now going to be held accountable to deliver. You've had this remedial action. It's all been very well documented lines that you've exited and or whether you've downsized or slightly changed tack. Since you took over, you've certainly been focused on this remedial action. But now looking forward in 2021, would we see that as a bit of a baseline and that you're going to be sort of springboarding forwards now with XOXL or do you think there's still more remedial work to do? So absolutely. I mean, for us, 2021 is a reset and relaunch for XOXL in the UK. You know, we're putting all of that change behind us and we're looking forward. As you say, Mark, we've taken some difficult decisions on some lines of business, but we've taken them and we've taken them quickly. We haven't taken them hastily. We've considered them very carefully, but when we thought we knew what we needed to do, we just got on and made the decision. So we've made our decisions and we've moved on. I wouldn't expect any other major portfolio moves from Axa XL in the UK. What we're talking about now is the disciplined execution of our plan. We're clearly going to be driving the segmentation of the business hard. We're going to be driving rate hard, but that's what we're empowering our underwriters to do. As I said, we built this plan in the UK with the UK underwriting teams, with the UK leadership. It's our plan. We own it. We're empowered by it. And I'm excited because now we, we have an opportunity to show what we can do to deliver what we've promised. It's now an improved market for underwriting, certainly 2021. What are the classes of business that are most attractive to you? I say on the insurance side, at its heart, AXA XL in the London market is a specialty insurer. We lead the vast majority of the lines of business that we write. Uh, and obviously that business comes into London from around the world. So clearly in 2021, we're looking to play to our strengths. We're going to be focused on the specialty markets across all lines and on the wholesale business that comes into London. And, and I do think that, you know, with the depth of product that we have in specialty and wholesale, with the fact that we lead in all lines that we write and significantly we lead most of the business that we write, I do think that that gives us an opportunity because clearly what we're seeing happen 
is that we're seeing increased submission flows coming into London because of the hardening rating environment and the constriction of capacity in some local markets. So we've got the sort of perfect confluence, really, of an established leader like AXA XL. London is becoming more and more attractive for some of those specialty and wholesale lines. So we should see business flow increase and we'll be well positioned to take that opportunity. One of your remedial actions was to get out of certain broken market facilities. Do you think those are always going to be a casualty of the end of a softening market when the market suddenly starts to harden? Our view on broker facilities is that we want to work with our broker partners and we are active in broker facilities in the UK. So we're not certainly not anti-facilities. And I think we have shown ourselves a business that is willing to work with our brokers on different ideas around distribution. And, And as you say, I think we've been at the forefront of some of those experiments over the years just to see how we can support our brokers as they think about different ways of servicing their clients. Now, clearly, broker facilities do tend to thrive under soft market conditions, and we did see the expansion of those kind of vehicles in recent years. However, clearly, as the market hardens and everything's coming under much greater levels of scrutiny, particularly when it comes to underwriting performance and and returns, there is going to be a contraction in the number of those facilities. And it will be the facilities that are bringing additional cost but not adding demonstrable efficiencies either to the client or the carrier that really will be, I think, getting the scrutiny. So we're always going to see, I think, a bit of ebbing and flowing of facilities in the market. But I do think there is a place for broker facilities, but it is ultimately on all of us to ensure that they're facilities that are adding that value. And at the end of the day, for the client, they need to be offering the client the ability to drive better terms, pricing and conditions. And for the insurers and brokers, they need to be driving efficiency into the placement process. And presumably they better make you some money as well, otherwise you'll come off. Yes, that is absolutely key. Excellent, excellent. We've been through a very interesting renewal where the market's managed to still harden itself whilst not really having any shortage of capital and capacity overall in the aggregate. In that sort of environment, how does a business like Axrexel seek to differentiate itself? It seems to be that it's a market where you do need to have an edge, you have to have product, you have to have some IP, because it's not just your capital that you need to succeed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, being just a, a balance sheet is not a strategy. But having said that, it helps for us to be part of one of the strongest financial groups in the world, with, in fact, a stronger rating than most of our competitors and higher than Lloyd. So Being just a balance sheet is not a strategy to win, but it clearly helps if you are part of a group that has such a a strong position. But it's now also not a strategy to simply pay claims. Again, as important as it is, it's just not enough anymore. And, you know, again, when we look at our claims service, we think we have one of the strongest claims propositions in the market. Our strategy, if balance sheet and claims payment isn't enough, what is enough? I mean, our strategy is to move from being a payer of claims, as I say, as important that is, to being a true partner with our clients. And we have the capabilities to do that, in particular because of the depth of our global risk consulting practice and expertise. So I think the way we will win in the market is we've got the scale and, and depth of product offering and a clear leadership position. We have that scale and we have that lead position that makes us very, very relevant to our distribution partners. We have a proven ability to innovate. 
and bring fresh thinking to the market. I mean, maybe just to, to give you a very recent and very relevant example of that, which is the Global Health Risk Facility that was launched at Lloyd's, which is about bringing COVID vaccines to the hardest to reach parts of the world. Now, that was something we did in collaboration with a number of, of syndicates at Lloyd's. But really what we were able to bring to that facility is we were able to innovate and bring our risk consulting experience to the table. That will involve our risk engineers doing the risk consulting on ensuring that some of the underdeveloped logistical supply chains that will ultimately take vaccines into some of the most difficult parts of the world to reach. That risk consulting experience will one, ensure that we get viable vaccines to those that need it, but also, of course, it will make the ensuring of that vaccine supply much more cost-effective because we will be much more confident as insurers that the vaccines will get to their destination. And we will be bringing our global program capabilities to ensure that we can deliver local policies to local governments. I only use it as an example because it's highly relevant because of the situation we're in now. But there's not that many companies in the London market who could bring that depth of, yes, we are providing risk capital as part of the facility. We are also providing critical risk consulting, which the insurers will benefit from and which the end users will ultimately benefit from. And we are bringing our global program capabilities into the mix as well. And I think it's it's a demonstration of just what you get from having a London market insurer as part of a global organisation and can bring those skills and resources into the London market, into this important Lloyd's London Market Initiative, which is obviously a, a very important one for the public health emergency that we're in right now. Before I ask the next question, I wanted to break off for a minute and ask you a question. Has insurance really got a clue about technology and how to get the best out of it? Before you answer, I want to tell you a story about technology and insurance that I think proves beyond doubt that insurance people and tech people live on completely different planets. The story comes from the insurance technology innovators at InsureTech Gateway, and it comes with a request. They would like to wipe out the word interesting from the insurance dictionary. I don't know if you knew that all the InsureTech founders the InsureTech Gateway works with know this to be one of the most feared words that they could hear from an insurer. This is because interesting means a completely different thing to a tech founder as it does to an insurer. Imagine a crunch meeting. An insurtech founder, dressed in a suit for the first time in years, is pitching their idea to a room full of insurers. It's make or break. They're running out of money and time. As the meeting draws to a close, all of the insurers in the room thank the insurtech. There's shared glances, followed by hearty agreement. They all think the idea was interesting. In the lift going down the 23 floors to the streets of EC3, the founder is doing mental somersaults, fist pumps and texting, we nailed it, back to the team. At the same time, the insurers in the room have finally broken silence. One looks to the other and says, I didn't understand a word of that, did you? There's a general nod and sigh of relief around the room. They all agree again, it was interesting and get on with something else. Months go by and nothing happens. The founder is trying to work out who to talk to, to follow up on this great meeting. But eventually, they have to throw in the towel. And that's what the InsureTech Gateway is all about. The Gateway has spent the last five years doing the translating between the two different groups. 
They've been banning the word interesting and replacing it with focused conversation and action. And that is why InsurTech Gateway is one of the great places for activating innovation in insurance today. So next time you find some really interesting technology that you have no idea how to integrate into the insurance world, make sure you get in touch with them. You've spoken a lot about being part of this global group and the advantages of that. How does it change your mentality about your view of risk overall? Does it ever affect your mentality to say, well, we can do this because we're AXA? So I think the capabilities of AXA Group are very impressive. I mean, we've always been a global business, whether we were XL Catlin and before we were AXA XL. So we've always looked at risk from a global perspective. And we've, we've always felt that we had a great deal of experience and understanding of how to serve global clients with that understanding of global risk. I think what we get from being part of AXA Group is an even broader view of the risk environment. And I'll give you an example. I mean, AXA has got its own research fund, which is a scientific initiative committed to supporting science, contributing to societal progress by encouraging research. And they commit significant funds to support research into emerging risk topics, whether that's on the subject of health, whether it's environmental, whether it's new technologies, data security, artificial intelligence, and socioeconomic issues. So we thought that we had a good view of risk when we were Excel Catlin, but when we've now belonging to Axel Group, you sort of take a much broader, in many ways, more sophisticated view of the world of risk, because you're suddenly part of an organization that is making very significant investments into the risk area. And why is it doing that? It's doing it because one, it wants to contribute to the subject of risk, because as a risk business, we want to be a thought leader in the subject of risk. But it's also doing it because it wants to stay ahead of the risk environment. So it certainly broadened our horizons, and it's certainly given us access to a depth of research and skill that we probably haven't yet fully tapped into, Mark. So you're like a sort of kid in a sweet shop. So we'll see if we, what you come back with and what you put out into the market. Back to more mundane things. Obviously, you had a bit of right sizing. You've exited some lines of business, but you're still, even after that, you're, you're still a very, very large Lloyd's player. So I'd like to ask you about, and obviously you're a Lloyd's, former Lloyd's insider as well, Sean. What do you think about Lloyd's, the different blueprints, blueprint one and two? And do you think they're striking the right sort of balance for the market going forward? So I think Blueprint 2 is obviously much more targeted than Blueprint 1, and I think that's a good thing. I'm not going to criticise Lloyds for throwing everything at the wall, if you like, in Blueprint 1 and seeing how the market reacted. I think that wasn't a bad place to start, but some it did need to be narrowed into something that was more uh, tangible. And as you say, I have been around the market a long time, and I've been around market modernization a long time. And some of the discussions and some of the ideas are a little bit, they are a little bit of a groundhog day. We've never had any shortage of grand designs in this space. We've never had a problem diagnosing what's wrong and defining what we should do about it. We've seen that time and time again, the redefinition of the problem and the solution. And when you break it down, it is often the, very much the same thing. Challenge is always about delivery and taking the idea to make it tangible and get the market to move. I mean, one thing I'm hopeful of is that the move to remote working that we're all living with right now, I genuinely hope that that's part of a reason why perhaps 
the moment for market modernization has finally arrived. Market modernization in the past has always suffered from not having a burning platform for change. And maybe now, maybe now there is more of a burning platform than there has ever been. And it's never been a technology problem. It's always been a cultural problem. And perhaps the fact that we've had to work the way we've worked and we've had the dependence on PPL, et cetera, that perhaps we've now finally overcome some of that cultural resistance that's got in the way in the past, because we can't keep waiting for this change. The COVID situation is only accelerating the pace of change across every dimension of business. So we're looking more and more out of step in the London market with every year that goes by. The way I've always thought about market modernization is what, what it's trying to do is to get, I mean, there's roughly about 350 businesses in the London market, give or take. And what you're trying to do is move all of those firms, or most of them, in roughly the same direction at roughly the same time. And that's not an easy thing to do because people have their own business priorities, their own IT investment priorities. But that's what market modernization is trying to do. So I really genuinely hope that its moment has arrived and that Blueprint 2 can be the vehicle to actually really start to, to implement and achieve some of the things we need to do. I mean, we are positive about, about Blueprint 2. There's hardly anything in there that we would argue with, but clearly the rubber will hit the road, to quote John Neal, now because we've got to move to delivery. I do think that ultimately it has to be a solution for the whole London market. You know, as a dual platform business, we have an interest in doing things in one way, as do the brokers. But, you know, that is a discussion that I'm sure will be part of the, the, the planning of how this is going to get delivered. But, you know, it does offer a real opportunity. We know that we need to reduce expenses in the London market. And, you know, we see the opportunity in our business to be able to do that, whether it's in our middle or back office. We see a tremendous advantage by front ending some of the governance and control processes like sanctions checking, etc., and we would expect to see a reduction in broker acquisition costs if we get this right, because everybody will benefit from this. So we're fully behind it, but cautiously optimistic that this moment might come. But delivery has always been a painful part of this exercise. What do you think is a realistic target for an expense saving in the medium term? Well, Lloyd's have talked about, I think, 800 million. I mean, frankly, I think we would hope across the market it would be significantly more than that. I can't put a figure on it, but that does seem somewhat conservative if you were to look at the potential for cost savings across the whole of the London market. In terms of ambition, do you think everything should be digitised as soon as humanly possible? Is that the way you look at it? So I absolutely think we should be trying to drive digitization into as much of the process as we can. The reality is this is a, a very inefficient market. We've got a sort of hodgepodge of things going on within the market that are trying to digitize certain elements, which again is not very efficient. And I'm not sure people drive particularly competitive advantage from trying to do it in that way. So we would certainly be, and we're trying to digitize part of our own processes as, as everybody is. So we certainly see that we need to digitize. We are in a situation where we haven't found an effective way to make the end-to-end -end process more efficient. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about the communication between brokers and carriers or between MGAs and carriers, or ultimately between clients, brokers and carriers, that whole chain is way too complicated. So we're certainly supportive of anything that will drive efficiency into the placement process and into the accounting and settlement process, because 
frankly, nobody really gets any competitive advantage from that. That's not the value add. The value add is the sophisticated upfront service proposition that you bring to the market, not the way you process the business. And whenever I talk to technologists, of course, they say this is probably an intermediate step once people had slips and then now you give them digital slips. But actually, when you go fully digital, you realize you didn't need a slip anymore. That's an intermediate step. I mean, would you agree with that with with the technologists that, in fact, once we go fully digital, we can actually completely change the process itself? I'm not a technologist, so it won't be a very well-informed view, but I would expect that that's almost certainly the case because what we don't want to do is we don't want to stand still, digitize an inefficient process and think we've won. What you want to do is you want to make the process of now digitizing what we currently do now might be the first logical step, but it can't be the final solution. It has to be going from this mix of structured and unstructured data into a world where we're actually fully structured in all of the data that we use. And that isn't beyond the imagination of anybody, given what we can see that that technologists and data scientists can do. We've had a bit of a glimpse of what a digital future might look like with some of these semi-automatic underwriting ventures like the key syndicate set up in the market now. Does that sort of idea of a lean algorithmic underwriter, does that hold any appeal to you? And obviously you've got all your AXA boffins who've probably written lots of papers on all this kind of stuff. We're certainly interested. I mean, as an industry, as we just talked about, we need to find more efficient ways of doing what we do. and, And what we do is match capital to risk and try to bring as much analysis into that process as we can. And, you know, as I talked about, I think the desire to add services into that process, so it's not just about matching capital to risk is is important. But we know we need to be more efficient at it, and we know we can be better at using our data to drive better risk selection and risk pricing. As a business, as AXA-XL, our biggest investment over the past three years has been in building our data capability and matching that with our use of artificial intelligence. So we, like many organizations, are already on that journey and matching data with algorithms to drive underwriting is a sort of logical next step. I mean, clearly that will go so far and we are interested in it and we're we're experimenting internally in our own organization on on all of those things I just talked about. What we need to avoid is being defined by it. I think we need to recognize that these things are tools that we should be using. We don't want to replace what we do with an algorithm. We can certainly make our capital deployment more efficient and make our underwriting more insightful. But you know, we don't want to be defined by that. It's a tool. We need to leave room for ourselves to innovate and partner with our clients and bring those sophisticated insights, which may be informed by data and algorithms, but you know, ultimately have to be interpreted by conversations, discussions and intelligence around the client. So I don't think we can be replaced by technology, but no doubt there is a role for that kind of underwriting in the future, I think. You couldn't be sitting in 2021 and not talk about COVID. You've touched upon it in the terms of the vaccine facility that you're on. What would you say the COVID crisis in big picture has taught the insurance industry over the last year? I would say probably two things. I think clearly you can't talk about industry lessons learned from COVID without talking to some degree about the FCA test case. It's clearly shown a misalignment between insurers and clients about coverage, and it's put wordings and coverage to the fore and under intense focus. And that's a good thing. I think it's highlighted really an urgent need for the industry to accelerate its efforts to simplify its wordings and improve clients' understanding of the cover that we're providing. So really moving from contract certainty, you're old enough to remember that, Mark, 
Yes. Uh, moving from contract certainty to contract clarity. Historically, contract certainty was just about, well, let's just make sure we've got a contract. And that was a big effort for the industry. I think we now need to get much more refined about moving contract clarity. So I think it's been a wake up call for carriers and frankly, for brokers. And we certainly need to learn the lessons. And we certainly are looking at our proposition our wordings to make sure that you know we can be confident that we understand what we're covering and that we believe our clients can understand that too and obviously Lloyd's has got a product simplification effort underway as well so I think there's a big lesson learned about making sure that we can be better at offering a clear product the second lesson I think is really about preparedness and I don't mean that in the terms of the operational preparedness of the insurance industry because that's very similar to the operational preparedness for every sector of the economy. What I'm really talking about is the preparedness to foresee what's coming at us. And a pandemic was foreseeable, but it was generally just not anticipated at this scale by anyone. No one anticipated that it would be global and no one foresaw or planned for the type of lockdowns that we had and the kind of operational and economic dislocation that you know we're still experiencing and because no one really anticipated nobody planned for it and you know we've seen the economic and human cost of that lack of preparedness that's not a criticism of everybody it was just an unforeseen event but I think to learn the lessons from it we have to think so what other risks are out there and how can we actually accelerate our preparedness and you know I think when we look at the future scenarios whilst COVID is dominating everything there are lots of other emerging risks out there if you look at the AXA future risk report which was published in October pandemic is the top emerging risk it was in the top 10 but it was much lower down now it's number one surprise surprise and what it's done is it's pushed all the other risks down and the second risk is climate change which was always the top risk and obviously we believe that climate change, it is the biggest risk we face. Pandemic is the biggest risk we face today, but climate change is the biggest long-term risk we face. And we do believe that the insurance industry is uniquely placed to, to play a leadership role on climate. And indeed, AXA, in its new strategy for the next three years, has put climate leadership as one of its strategic pillars. So it's about preparedness. It's about looking at, well, you know, climate risk or cyber risk or geopolitical risk. What are the things out there and how can we better prepare and how can we support our clients better prepare? With COVID, could we have done anything better other than just make sure it was really clearly excluded because it was a systemic risk that we hadn't foreseen? Yeah. And, and you know, I think we had pandemic risk in our risk log like everybody did. But you just didn't anticipate it to be quite, as you say, systemic as it was. I think some of these risks, you know, the benefit is that they are likely more foreseeable and therefore we should be able to have a, a longer term strategy to prepare for those. But at things like cyber, which we know, we know is a systemic potential risk to have catastrophic global cyber when we've had so many warnings already. Would you agree? We really can't have any excuses if we do have a, a very, very big global cyber loss, 50 billion plus, then we should have seen it coming, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a fair comment. There's been so many studies written about the impact of a major cyber outage. And I've read some of the studies and it's just how if there is a cyber attack on a major piece of software that's used by a large enough number of people and how it can impact whether it's taking out the, the electricity grid or disrupting business. So I agree, there's been a lot of studies. The dilemma is that at the end of the day, to deal with cyber risk, as we know, because it has been debated a lot, 
it is going to come down to private public partnership and the challenge because cyber risk is not within borders it's really hard to get that kind of public private partnership engagement going it's a different terrorism which is very much within the domain of a particular border cyber risk is borderless and therefore it's really hard to get that public private partnership discussion going for a risk that knows no bounds in terms of its geographic reach Within the world that you operate, the brokered specialty insurance world, we've had a large amount of M&A, first the MMC, JLT, big deal. And now we've got the mooted Aon Willis deal. How's that going to affect your business? We're in a, a good position in the sense that we are an important market for all of the brokers that we deal with in London. And we're not complacent about that at all, but it does put us in a very good position when it comes to our response to broker M&A. So I don't think we'll be particularly adversely affected by it. We have deep relationships with all of the brokers that we trade with. You know, and clearly we can expect some level of dislocation that results from continuing M&A at the top of the league table, if you like. There are brokers out there who see that kind of M&A as an opportunity and an advantage to attract talent and grow and offer alternative propositions to clients. We've seen that before, we'll see it again. And I think that will keep the London market dynamic. So I think that's a good thing. So I don't think it's a particularly negative thing for us. And we will look to see what dislocation there is in the market and be ready to respond to it. So do you fairly sort of Darwinian about it and would just let them get on with it? I think it's a little bit like um, the conversation we were having about the differing value propositions that different carriers offer. We are very differently positioned to a lot of other carriers in the market because of some of the depth of opportunities and capabilities that we have as a business that perhaps they don't. And that's what keeps the market diverse. And I think the same is true for the brokers. Everybody is fighting for talent. Everybody's fighting for clients. And they do that by constantly reimagining their value proposition i think that's a good thing and and you know we're excited by the fact that we have such strong relationships with our brokers and we'll continue to see dynamism in that marketplace i think it's probably that is ultimately good for the clients and it's good for the market because it generates fresh ideas fresh thinking about adding value and and that's a good discipline there's no shortage of investment in brokers no well sean it's been a real pleasure talking to you thanks very much I hope you carry on enjoying it and you come back and give us an update at some point in the future. So thank you so much. No, thanks, Mark. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Thanks for chatting. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.
www.thepodcastmedia.com. <laughs>